Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture with me, Robert Bound. On today's programme, we're speaking to the creative dream team behind what promises to be one of the standout elements of this year's Manchester International Festival, a new film titled All of This Unreal Time. That creative clan are comprised of the novelist Max Porter, the film director Aoife McArdle and the musician John Hopkins, all of whom have come together to make Max's script a personal and universal plea, apology, prayer into celluloid reality. Killian Murphy plays a man in constant motion, walking through the night towards the future, through a deserted lockdown London, through subterranean tunnels, neon-lit, rain-licked streets, into the dawn and the edgelands, where a sort of subtle revelation unfolds. Murphy's character, in his one-man monologue, fulminates against his own failings. Are they his or all of ours? It's a moody, memorable, beautiful piece of work under the directorship of Aoife McArdle and the strange and beguiling soundtrack written by John Hopkins with Bryson Aaron Dessner of The National. It is quite a thing. And here are John, Aoife and Max to talk about all of this unreal time. Max, John, um, Aoife, thank you so much um, for your time today um, to talk through this this wonderful, unusual, moving film. Um, how did you come together as a creative clan working on this uh, working on this project? Max, maybe I'll, I'll kick off with with you. We've been brought together by uh, the sort of amazing steering powers and magnetic matchmake sort of creative matchmaking skills of a person called Mary Hickson, uh, who specialises in bringing people together to work together who might not have worked together before, but also across different forms, musicians, artists, uh, performers. So uh, I'd shared, the, I'd written a piece for Killian and Killian had shared it with Mary. We thought originally it might be a, a performance thing in the theatre and then we sort of thought, no, it needs it needs music and it needs film. And so uh, Mary shared it with Aoife and then we made the film and then the film went over to John and Aaron and Bryce and it's grown since then. And, and from that, from, from Mary having it onwards, it's all been under the commissioning umbrella of Manchester International Festival who paid for the film and are going to put on this extraordinary, what are we calling it? Immersive multimedia event. (laughs) Installation. (laughs) Installation. Um, How will that be realised in in Manchester at the festival? It's sort of grown from being a film into also being a live installation. So it sort of has two lives. But the live installation is, um, yeah, we've tried to make it as immersive as possible for the audience. So it'll have, you know, it'll be a gigantic screen and um then in terms of how we mastered the sound you know we very much explored surround sound and how we could use that with all the different layers that are in there so when the audience uh watches it for the first time yeah they should feel like they're really in the film and feel very much part of it and you know feel the birds flying around them and the planes flying over their heads and those kind of elements that try to bring out of the the writing in the film yeah and john i mean co-writing the music there's you know it's a, it's a very speech heavy film obviously and the music is subtle it's kind of there's moments that that suggest the kind of emptiness of the city and then as your protagonist walks out into into nature um there's more sort of organic sounds in there how did you approach it when it's such a kind of text heavy piece of work yeah so some um as you mentioned, myself and Aaron Dessner and Bryce Dessner, and um, they, we were all in different countries for most of this. So I'd never done a 
collaborative score before and I'd never worked remotely in this way before. So we were all just kind of finding our way in it, in it I suppose. But um, we started by just writing freely over the, over the piece and um, and then with Eva's input, we, we ended up just kind of whittling things down and just creating a lot of textures and different materials which she could place in the film to because it really had to flow with the dialogue and it couldn't just be wall-to-wall music obviously so um it went through various iterations and, and ended up very refined i think and uh so yeah so aaron and bryce would send me things i would sometimes process them and send them back and we just ended up with this whole folder of very collaborative stuff It's a film, I guess, about truth, and it's a film that's kind of is very definitive of kind of night thoughts. You know, uh, I mm. wondered about the writing of the music, John. <laughs> do you have Do you have night thoughts? Yeah, there's <laughs> Max. M- Max asking the leading question, John. Let's, let's tackle that one head on. No, no thoughts after nine pm. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. I mean, because because the way the film kind of goes through the night and ends in the dawn. I mean, I never, my writing process is ne- never has anything pre-planned or conscious about it. So I will always just let my subconscious, you trust in the subconscious just to do all the work. And um, watching this film, is there's so much in there. And the, one of the reasons I agreed to do it originally because um, it's just the power of the words is enormous. And I just straight away start hearing things, you know, and um, the same with the, with the picture when I saw the, so I, I specifically requested um, that I got to do some of the writing over the end scene because it connected so much visually with me as well as as what he's actually talking about at that point. But yeah, really just letting the letting the subconscious do the work um, and and trusting in that. Yeah, and it mel- the, the music melds so beautifully into the kind of sound design. Eva, you you've obviously got some wonderful moments near the end of the film as our man's kind of walking through sort of meadows by the side of railway tracks and a murmuration of starlings kind of a great piece of fortune for a filmmaker right a wonderful thing you can't really lay those on how did you kind of approach that and and how how long were you out there trying to trying to capture those parts of nature I suppose once I read the words um I sort of built a treatment out of like what the imagery and the locations could be and what the kind of you know, what the journey could be in terms of night into day and, you know, what kind of gritty places we could take in. And we looked at Dublin at one point as a location and then looked at um, back at London because I did feel like there was still, like, a lot of natural beauty to London, you know, that hasn't really been explored. So I think when I read Max's words, like, it made me think a lot about those kind of locations that, you know, traditionally you find you know, maybe grittier or more industrial or more ugly in some ways, but actually they have a real beauty. You know, those places like the marshes next to the train tracks or the places with like, you know, the rivers by pylons. And so, yeah, for some reason, I guess the struggle that the characters going through in the words, you know, made me think of those kind of places. So, um, so yeah, it was very much about then piecing the schedules together around these places and when we could get sunset and sunrise in these places um and I was very much looking at it from that perspective for a long time until we got there and it was 
torrential rain. So uh, we really <laughs> shot through torrential rain for pretty much the whole shoot. And like that wasn't planned, but then you just, I guess, just really embraced it and actually loved it a lot more. I mean, I felt like you wouldn't get the same uh, elemental beauty and the same like freshness in certain ways with the imagery if we didn't have that rain and that wetness and that sort of that extra level of 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 uh of pain in some ways you know yeah that those sort of liminal spaces on the edge of the city i suppose are really central max it's, it seems like it's very central to to the themes the themes you're exploring there that idea of there are so few spaces at least that your protagonist that Killian walks through that are un- untouched by man, that are unmessed up, I suppose. The, these settings kind of pretty much mirrored what you were putting down on the page. Yeah, but that's one of the nice things for me about collaborating is that you have... Uh, I don't want meaning fixed on the, on the piece. I don't want meaning finished ever, really. I want it to go on being interpreted and changing every time it meets a reader. So that so it became very different when Aoife started to visualise it in that urban landscape. It became very different, as she says, when we arrived and it was so squelchy and wet and glistening and buzzing. The whole thing was always buzzing with power lines or traffic and therefore the piece took on this kind of post-industrial hum that Killian was very into and worked on, I think, and the whole crew around it all started to sense that this thing was going to be more to do with the liminal and also the kind of ambiguous, like the meaning isn't, fixed in the text I, I want readers and viewers and listeners to be think that he's not the confession itself it's sort of a poem and an essay and I think the music and the, and the visuals have done the same thing they've kind of what is he talking about is it is he one person is he representative of a whole type of people is he is he masculinity is he is he homo sapien is he all you know and I want the, the way that that all is in motion the whole time, has, has been kept and elaborated on and sort of expanded by by the film and then the music in a way that I, I'm really amazed by. And I, and I hope I hope that this is won't be complete. I hope that when the, when the viewer has been immersed in it, I mean, by the sounds of it, the installation in Manchester is going to be absolutely next level in terms of the sound and the space. And I want that thinking about what the text means, what the landscape, what the figure in the landscape means, what the sound and the voice and, you know, the meaning to go on right after they've left and walked off into their own landscapes. You know, we, we want this to sort of live in the viewer in a way that isn't perhaps possible when you haven't got so many elements speaking to one another. And Aoife and John, do you kind of get... Did you get a, a kind of brief or did you get Max's text? Did you get the script of the film and work on it that way? At what point do you... Because I, I sense that Max doesn't want to explain. He's not, he's, he's not a heavy-handed collaborator, right? He doesn't... It's a wodge of text, but I can't imagine he's pushing you in, in super specific directions. Uh, I, I'm guessing he's, he allowed you guys to completely open up your own kind of can of worms Aoife Aoife took a bloody knife to it started chopping lines out left right and centre no that's not true the surgeon I'm sure there's only a couple Um, (laughs) no I mean it was it was like I mean yeah it's like a gift it was a really pure beautiful way to work actually because yeah got given this incredible piece of text that Max had written which was just you know pure poetry really and takes you in so many different directions in your mind and it's so inspiring that like when I read it I mean I yeah who everyone's going to read it and see it uh, see different images in their head and that's the beauty of the writing as well but yeah I guess for me I was like saw it this certain way you know and I'm just kind of went that direction with it as much as I could in terms of this 
journey through night and through these kind of grittier places to take you through to something that was very natural and powerful at the end and that really brought out that catharsis because you know I think we all felt it when we read the piece you know that the ending was just so like get you know really gets you in the gut and it's so powerful especially in the times we're in right now where we're all we've all been locked in and you know we've you know rediscovering the power of nature and just simple things and human connection is such a such a privilege as well you know so like reading yeah reading the text and then just finding ways to like get that journey so that you know you went really had that arc with this character that you did go through these sort of this darkness and this questioning and this sort of inner torment and memories and everything that makes up a human being and then you know came out at the end on this other place that was quite hopeful and cathartic and yeah it's great and and the lighting the lighting ether is is kind of is incredible it's supremely intimate we see a lot of Killian's face and yet a lot of it is shot at night how how did that work you you've got such a lovely balance and seeing this in 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 some of your other work as well this amazing facility with faces and intimacy how was that achieved on on this shoot yeah i mean i think that's part of how i work too is to you know especially when there's not a budget obviously i'm very interested in lighting and that side of filmmaking is a side that i'm passionate about but at the same time you know, we were limited in our resources too. So it was more like for a project like this, it was building the, the film around the locations that you knew you were going to get that beautiful light from and, you know, and from photographs I'd taken over the years and places and I've tried to build up an archive of that kind of stuff. And then obviously, you know, when we went out location hunting, um, it was, yeah, it was focusing on places where we could, where we could get that look you know we could get those lights or where we could add additional small lights in a in a way that wasn't be too invasive because we had to be quite relatively guerrilla in how we were shooting too so so yeah a, a lot of it was just down to the choices of location really and then and then adding some additional lighting and colors to bring out as much intimacy as we could get and to keep you connected with the character in all these kind of strange places and stuff and it got stranger didn't it because like london is strange anyway at 3 a.m you know, Barking High Street at 3am is a pretty weird spot. Um, yeah, and, you know, plus, plus add, a, add a pandemic and us all masked and us all trying to communicate and Killian drenched and Killian trying to trying to say this stuff in a way that was that was yeah. powerful. I mean, it was it was intense. Yeah, no, it was, it was massively it intense. And we shot it very fast, really. We shot it in real time, which is, you know, given what the money we had to make it, we knew we had to kind of be very organised and mathematical about how we moved through each location and how we moved through each lighting setup. And so there was a lot of organisation into it. And then obviously the rain really slowed us down a lot. But I feel like, you know, obviously that gives you a natural wet down in some of these places. It's, I was going to wet down some of them anyway, so that saved some time. Um, but yeah, then you get, you know, the lighting, the way that brings out that was another really special element and just kind of, yeah, connecting you with and making it more sensory, really. So, yeah, there was a lot of... Yeah, yeah the rain it, suits it beautifully. The rain suits it beautifully. It really feels like as much as he's he's going through something, so is the earth. The earth's kind of giving him giving him some tears back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, John, I, I, in terms of that question about getting briefed and stuff, what about you and Max? You kind of swap... You kind of saying this is what I'm listening to. This isn't the vibe. Or did you kind of go off into your own, into your studio and create and just? You know, is there much back and forth in the writing process for you? 
So, no, I mean, um, Max and I didn't speak about the music at all. Um, and I think it's, it, it was because there's three composers and we were just we were just kind of left to, to start our own thing. I think I always like to just start with something and send it to the collaborators and see what comes back, you know. And um, so I think there was a lot of freedom at the beginning and then as we started to refine it, it became clear that we needed more. We kind of had an original score, like a very different tone, which was much more kind of straight musical, and it became not musical, <laughs> like a musical. <laughs> just want to point that absolutely clear. Um, oh, man, to only we could get the soundtracks mixed up at the Manchester Festival, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't look like he's about to burst into song at any point. <laughs> Something for Max to think about maybe next time. I wish we'd done that now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Amazingly inappropriate. We're doing a um, drum and bass rom com. Have we mentioned that? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you, you kind of have to start somewhere. So we did do a pass of stuff. And I think the three of us composers are quite fast workers. And we, we kind of, t- we just divided it arbitrarily into three um, chapters. And I, you know, I did the last one first and the, the other two did the other two. And then, um, but it, it ended up really far from that and, and stronger for it because it needed to be. It needs to be darker than we had it. And um, what I really like doing, one of the things I'm probably better at, I think, um, than I am at other things, is is mangling existing sounds. So we had all this material, and then it was all quite beautiful, and then I just destroyed it. <laughs> made just made it like there's some really dark music in the first third in particular, and that's um, that was once a very beautiful string piece. <laughs> But now it's like this really apocalyptic kind of introspective grinding nightmare. And um, that is what it needed, you know. And it was, it's great to be kind of something else. Yeah, the, the back and forth was really between us musicians and Aoife, and we were guided into that direction. And um, it meant when you do get catharsis towards the end and when everything opens out and you get the dawn and the marshes, it, it meant something, you know. There was contrast and there was beauty that was earned um you know he's like crawling through brambles to get out into a clearing you know it was uh, so so it has that arc to it i think remember what we talked max when we were talking about your francis bacon book earlier this year and you said oh it's great i'm I'm doing i'm doing this film and it's great to have sort of lots of you know a few plates spinning it kind of keeps your creative juices kind of flowing and all the rest of it was this written first of first and foremost as as a film piece or was this something that was kind of in the back of your mind somewhere on your laptop kind of thing as as a thing that existed and you weren't quite sure and, and it suddenly became this thing with your collaborators this was for kill i don't know we didn't decide what we wanted to do we were talking a lot about the sort of the moment and male guilt uh the me too movement in his industry um and in, and in mine this sense of um confession in a sort of secular sense and we'd watched a couple of there's a couple of things we'd seen and been discussing both music and you know, like certain albums and things but also certain projects bet- across forms so for example the anima 
film that Tommy Hawk did mm. with contemporary dance meets meets kind of music video. Yeah, it's an extraordinary piece of work. Actually, I love your version of that Dawn Chorus tune, John. Oh, cool! Thank you. Oh man, that get, that gets me. So we were thinking, like, what, what, what it would have because he doesn't want to go back into the theatre. He did it. He did. He did theatre. We did a theatrical project together a few years ago, and he found it very grueling. I mean, it was very grueling for him. Um, so he was quite sure he didn't want it in the theatrical space. And then, so film was the obvious thing. And then when when we when we met Eva and we started to look at Eva's work and talk to her about it. And even the work that Aoife has done with John in the past, there is this, as you said, a study, there's an intimacy, as well as this huge scale of the human being in the landscape. So when the most exciting thing for me was when Aoife started storyboarding it, and it felt like a different type of narrative arc that wasn't necessarily story in the conventional sense, but was more kind of emotional arc of of thought. It's almost like thought being subjected to the pressures of a landscape. And then, and then that, 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 that thought has been subjected again to the pressures of the musical landscape. And now I, now will be subjected again to the kind of architectural pressures of this huge venue. And that, that is, that is beyond our wildest dreams when it was just the two of us emailing back and forth. But that's the great thing about Manchester funding it and Mary Hickson getting behind it. Yeah. And, and does it mean, does it mean the same to you watching it on film? Max, as it as it did when you when when it was a word document, <laughs> you know what I mean. I mean, it's the meaning of it changed now that you see it, kind of pointing yeah. back at you. I think I, th- I think it does, and I think it should. And we all do this, like like it must be the same for you too. You put something out in the world, and you read, you look at it. I mean, I don't tend to watch. I don't tend to read my books. <laughs> I sit down with a nice cup of tea and an early Max Porter very often. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yes, I think the work should change as we change. Uh, I think we should simultaneously recognise ourselves in it and 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 be and recognise what we've lost, what we've gained. So this piece uh, speaks to me. When I watched it the other night, I was quite moved actually. Partly because it seemed to speak to responsibility and and child and caring for one another in a community in a way that it didn't before the pandemic the sort of urgency of compassion. I mean, we live, I can say this, you know how I feel about this. I think we've discussed it in other contexts, all of us, but as an English person now, uh, looking at the scale of our, uh, of uh, the sort of moral collapse of our governance and, and, and the sort of irresponsibility and sheer you know, injustice perpetrated by us here and in the world, it seems increasingly urgent to be talking about responsibilities of care and kindness um both for those notionally near to us i.e., other human beings but also to the planet so i'm chuffed that it that it's still humming it's still like i I, you want you want to mean the work don't you and and you want the work to mean something back whatever it is music theater film anything mime i guess mime artists feel it too you know whatever so yeah I'm, i'm chuffed that it's still seeming to be saying something um i love the uh the scene when Killian is in a kind of diner, beautiful colours there, that amazing, crazy blue, and that there's a TV playing like that you'd have the football on or something up at the in the top of the this this diner, um, on which there look like it looks like coverage of the LA, of the California wildfires perhaps or so, or something, um, and then this this thing that you think is a is a moth attracted to the fluorescent light. Turns out to be a butterfly, and I thought that—that that was such a lovely thing. Was that was that a sort of bit of sleight of hand, Eva? That was a lovely, uh, lovely moment. No, oh, I'm glad you like it. Yeah, no, I, I it, no, it was intentional. I mean, that moth 
well stroke butterfly that butterfly got paid more than any of us i think on the job <laughs> i saw I in the credits the- <laughs> mo- that there was a moth supervisor <laughs> yeah, which yeah. i think is the best credit him, him and his entourage got the most money i think um so no I, I actually did like it was a funny thing i remember talking with the producer about it because i just really wanted that moment to happen and it, it was a kind of uh yeah, it was a discussion about whether it was worth spending the money on this butterfly or not. But um, I'm really happy that we did in the end. Because, yeah, it was more just, I like the idea of having that little beat of, um, I mean, it's almost like a, a, a pre, you know, it's a sort of premonition in a way of the ending in a way. Like it's a little, um, and it's almost like, a, I think, a, like a tiny touch of femininity in this very sort of masculine, sort of harsh moment. So, yeah, there was a couple of things going on with that idea, but... Um, but I'm uh, I'm really glad we got it in the end, you know, and actually did perform pretty well, which doesn't always happen with these uh, creatures and animals on camera. It did its job. <laughs> <laughs> did it take long to, to re- recapture? Not as long as I expected, actually, you know. Um, uh, I mean, no, we, we actually got pretty lucky there, you know, because you can never tell. I mean, for instance, I recently shot with goats, you know, and that was just... <laughs> That was just like a whole other level of, of hard, hardship, you know. They were uncontrollable, like leaping through the scene everywhere. So like it was a surreal scene at least, but I didn't expect it to be that surreal. So yeah, I think we got um, we got really lucky with our butterfly in the end. He did really good. Um, and I guess it was lucky it was already set up that he was going to be attracted to this uh, fluorescent light and so on. And We had some good bants as well, didn't we, about the about the yeah. moth stealing the yeah. scene and just being way better than Killian and like Killian yeah, making such a meal yeah. of everything, need, needing a ward. And the moth just came in, bang, incredible no, performance no. and then just left. He did get upstaged <laughs> a bit by the butterfly, it has to be said, yeah. <laughs> My thanks to Max Porter, John Hopkins and Aoife McArdle and all of this Unreal Time will premiere at the Manchester International Festival on the 2nd of July as that large-scale installation and it's also available to watch on demand. This programme was produced by Holly Fisher and I've been Robert Bound. We'll be back same time, same place next week. But for the time being, thank you very much for tuning in.